So this is the second week in our Advent series. We're going through the um, Messianic prophecies in the Messianic prophecies in Isaiah. So these are all the prophecies about Jesus in the book of Isaiah. Um, and last week, Jimmy did a great job of uh, setting up some context for Advent and the concept of hope um, and a little bit of the history of Isaiah. Um, so what I want to do is start add a little more context, um, just kind of about the prophets in general, as Isaiah is one of the prophets, um, give a kind of quick overview of some of, the, of Isaiah and the key themes, and then kind of jump into today's passage um, and see what it has for us today. So first, just some kind of thoughts on the prophets in general. Um, for a long time, I, I thought of prophecy as just sort of like fortune-telling, like prophecy is just predicting future events. Um, and there's definitely some of that in the prophets, and including in Isaiah. So this, this would be an example of what's called divinatory prophecy, like predicting future events. So the prophecies about Jesus would be divinatory prophecy, um, and Isaiah has some of that. But a lot of the prophets are, um, they were people who called out injustice around them. Um, so they called out their fellow Israelites, called out their government, called out their nation. And this is sometimes called reformative or revolutionary prophecy. And this is actually really the bulk of Old Testament prophecy, is this type of prophecy. Um, every king sort of had their prophet throughout the Old Testament. Um, you can think of them as kind of like the conscience of the king, almost like a Jiminy Cricket figure. Um, they were these, the gadfly to power, right? Um, so they were making sure the king stayed on the straight and narrow. Um, and you can see all these pairings throughout scripture. Uh, king um, David had Nathan, King Nebuchadnezzar had the prophet Daniel, um, King Jeroboam had Hosea, King Herod had John the Baptist. Some would argue um, king, uh, Emperor Nero had uh, the apostle John. Um, and basically the prophets, these are people who were speaking truth to power without concern for their own safety. Um, and a lot of them got killed for it. Um, and they were also, the prophets were also people who were always doing like weird stunts and things, like um, Jeremiah wore a yoke as a symbol of imperial captivity. Um, John the Baptist was known for eating locusts and wearing camel skin. Um, uh, Ezekiel was one of the weirdest ones. He, he staged a protest where he laid on his side for 430 days uh, to symbolize, each day was symbolizing a year that Israel had been in um, sin and rebellion. And meanwhile, the whole time he, he was eating um, food cooked on uh, cow poop. Um, yeah, very, it was meant to like shock and embarrass essentially Israel. It was meant to, these were stunts that were meant to like call attention. They were kind of like media stunts of today, right? It was meant to, to call out the injustice around them and wake up the people. Um, so in that context, understand, that understanding of prophets, um, I would say that we, we have had modern prophets and have modern prophets, or at least prophet-like figures, you might say. Um, these are people who are often controversial in their day and revered after their deaths. Um, I think of people like, um, like Bishop Desmond Tutu, who is an anti-apartheid activist. Um, I think of people like Malala. Um, and it's easy to multiply examples in U.S. history during the Civil Rights Movement. We think of people like Fred Hampton, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks. And though not all were necessarily Christian, I would say they all had sort of a prophetic aspect to them. Um, the demonstrators who did sit-ins in the civil rights movements were participating in acts of prophecy, in this sense of prophecy. Um, in modern America, I think of uh, authors like Sung Chan Ra or Shane Claiborne, um, who I'll be referencing later. Um, these are people with a prophetic spirit in their work. And so we'll see in Isaiah, he does both. He does this future-telling prophecy, and he does this, this injustice-calling-out prophecy. So um, getting back to Isaiah... I just want to give a quick overview of some of the historical context for the book. As Jimmy set up, this starts uh, about 700 years before um, the birth of Christ. Um, and actually, the whole book of Isaiah spans a, a pretty long period of time, including four different kings of Judah. 
Um, there's essentially three different sections. So in the middle of, of Isaiah is when um, Israel is captured by the, the um, people of Babylon. Is, they're conquered by this empire and sent into exile. So the first um, section of Isaiah, like the first 39 chapters, take place before this exile. And then um, there's like 15 chapters that take place during the exile. And then there's some more chapters after the exile. So it spans a very broad range of time. Um, and in the beginning of Isaiah, we're in a situation where Israel's broken into two kingdoms. We've got the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and Isaiah is prophesying in the southern kingdom in, in Judah where Jerusalem is. Um, and, then, um, and then around chapter 40, the Babylonians um, conquer in 586 BC. Judah goes into exile for 70 years. Um, that kicks off that section. And then the final chapters are after the return. Um, and um, throughout the book, Isaiah is calling out the unrighteousness of his people and also prophesying of this coming king who will sit on David's throne and rule with justice, um, which we heard about in today's passage. And of course, that uh, person, that king, we know to be Jesus. Um, and there's uh, some um, debate among scholars. Most scholars agree that the, those second sections I talked about during and after the exile are probably written by different authors. We're kind of tagged on to Isaiah's writing. Um, but regardless of whether that's the case or not, um, the, uh, the book has a very cohesive element to it. There's beautiful mirroring passages um, throughout the book from the beginning to the end. Um, and it really functions as a, as a prophetic whole. So with that context in mind, with that overview of Isaiah, I want to get into Isaiah 11, the passage for today, and just kind of give a quick overview of that, and then we'll talk about kind of what that might mean for, for us today. Um, so we start out with this image of a, of a green shoot coming out of a stump. Um, it's natural to ask, where did that stump come from? What is the stump? Um, in the chapters previously, Isaiah had been warning that Assyria is going to invade. Um, they're going to crush Israel and Judah and then conquer Jerusalem. And this, this is the stump, essentially, that Isaiah is talking about. He's envisioning a time after this conquest. Um, Isaiah has turned to rubble, uh, or Israel, sorry, Israel has turned to rubble. Uh, the stump is essentially God's people cut down. But he promises in chapter 10 there will be a remnant. Some of God's people will survive. Um, and then from that line of that remnant will come this coming king. And that is the shoot coming out of this, out of this stump, which is Jesus. And interestingly, in most translations, he's called both the root of Jesse and the shoot off of this stump. He's both the root and the shoot. Um, and so what's interesting about that is he's essentially saying that he's, Christ is both the origin of David's kingship and he is in the line of, of the kings of David. Um, so he's not just another king in the line of kings. He, is, he surpasses and surrounds all these kings. He is the root and the branch. Um, and then Isaiah goes on in this passage, as Chris read, to describe this king. He says, the spirit of the Lord will be on him. He describes how he will rule with wisdom and righteousness. He will make just decisions and stand up for the exploited and the poor. He's this perfect king, is the, is the vision he's describing. And then this, the next section is about what the kingdom will look like under that rule. Under, when you have a righteous king, what does the kingdom look like? And it's a picture of peace. It's a picture of, he says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the child will play in a snake pit and be fine, the lion is going to eat grass. Um, and it's a very kind of poetic language of, of peace and harmony. And um, some commentators, which I would tend to agree with, would say that this passage is, is probably more figurative than literal. Um, he lists, essentially what he's doing is, Isaiah is listing a number of predator animals 
and then a number of prey animals and saying they'll live in, in harmony. And it's, it's, I think, this idea that the, the attacker and the victim will find peace, that both the oppressor and the oppressed will reconcile. Um, I mentioned uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu. He, uh, he said that true revolution is when the oppressed are free from being oppressed and the oppressors are freed from being oppressors. And I think it's this sort of piece that Isaiah is prophesying here. Um, and then there's other passages in Isaiah that kind of flesh out this image. Um, Isaiah 2 says that in that day they will beat their swords into plowshares, which is also an image that uh, the prophet Micah uses, which is one of my favorite images in scripture. Essentially, right, weapons of war will have no use anymore in this kingdom. There will be no need for them. Um, so people will turn them into tools of cultivation. The same piece of metal that used to bring death will bring life out of the ground. Um, and this is the kingdom that our king invites us into. Um, when the government that is on his shoulders is righteous and just, the people have peace. When we submit to the rule of Jesus and not to the rule of kings and presidents and aldermen, we have peace and justice. So that's the overview. Uh, and now as we dive into more detail, this is where things get a little political. Um, I believe that this chapter of Isaiah and the arrival of Christ that he describes are inherently political things. Um, they have radical implications for our politics. So let me explain what I mean. Um, so first of all, Isaiah was a direct consult of um, the, at least the kings of Uzziah and Hezekiah in his time. So he wasn't just like a John the Baptist figure like out in the wilderness. He was like, he was in the king's throne room. He was like, a, I think like a cabinet member for a president. Um, and the claims he makes about um, the coming king are political. He says he will be the heir to David's throne, right? He says the nations will rally to him. Um, and when he describes the kingdom under this new king, he doesn't describe some ethereal, faraway place where we just stand and sing songs of worship, right? He talks about, um, he says, this king will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. You know, he's talking about specific consequences for the economic and the, and the um, judicial systems of his day. Um, just one chapter before, in chapter 10, he says, what sorrow awaits the unjust judges, those who issue unfair laws, they deprive the poor of justice and deny the rights of the needy among my people. They prey on widows and take advantage of orphans. These statements have a bearing on public policy. And the same is true of Jesus. In Jesus' day, um, all Roman subjects were required to um, pledge loyalty to Caesar by saying, Caesar is Lord. This, this term Lord was, um, was a term that was specifically allocated just for Caesar. Um, it, it wouldn't have been used for anyone else in that time. So for the early church to say Jesus is Lord, everyone would have understood that at that time to be saying that Caesar is not. If you say Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And that's a big reason that Rome was executing Christians in that time. It was essentially, Christianity was seen as treason. Um, and when Jesus was being questioned by Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. He's essentially saying, you, you are not the authority over me. Um, Christ offers a fundamentally different sort of leadership than earthly rulers. Presidents kill to protect their people. Jesus lays his own life down. Nations punish crimes. Jesus offers grace. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Presidents win power with wealth. Jesus traveled in poverty. Politicians hate showing any sign of weakness. Jesus arrived as a baby as a refugee. Presidents send military force against their enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. The two are diametrically opposed. 
You cannot pledge your life to Christ and your allegiance to the flag. To see, the politics, to see politics in the life of Jesus is not to read some modern bias into scripture. It's fully what the gospel writers intended. Um, take, for example, the crucifixion, um, especially in the gospel of Matthew. Um, the narrative of the, the passion of Jesus is written in such a way that it perfectly mirrors the coronation ceremony of a Roman emperor. Um, so um, how the coronation ceremony would have gone is um, the new Caesar would have been um, led into the Roman praetorium and surrounded by guards. This is what happened to Jesus. He was led into the praetorium, surrounded by soldiers. Um, Caesar then, they would have put on him a, a purple robe, given him an olive wreath, and then given him a scepter. They did this mockingly to Jesus, put on him a purple robe, gave him a crown of thorns and a reed stick. Um, and then there would have been a procession. The Caesar, Caesar would have processed in front of um, a sacrificial bull being led behind him by a slave carrying the instrument of death for the sacrifice, carrying an ax. Um, Jesus processed, and in a beautiful reversal, Jesus processed as the sacrifice himself. Um, behind him was Simon of Cyrene carrying the instrument of death, the cross. Um, this procession for Caesar would have led up to the Capitoline Hill, um, which in Latin literally means head hill. Um, Jesus processed to Golgotha, which is translated as the uh, place of the skull or skull hill. Some people would just translate it head hill. That's an equally good translation. Um, and then in kind of a ceremony, Caesar would have been offered um, wine mixed with myrrh, uh, which he would ceremonially, ceremonially refuse, and then immediately the bull would be sacrificed. Um, Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall or bile, and then the next verse in Matthew is, and then he was crucified. Uh, then Caesar would have ascended up to the throne with his uh, first in command and second in command on his right and left. Jesus was lifted up um, with insurrectionists on his right and left, um, not to honor, but to, into dishonor. Um, and then Roman mythology would have understood, would say that after this, there would be some divine sign, so like a flock of doves or a solar eclipse or elements in kind of Roman coronation ceremonies. Um, and we have in Matthew, the temple curtain is torn, the sky was darkened, the tombs burst open, exactly the kind of divine signs that the, the Roman people would have associated with the coronation. So um, the people of that time would have, would have seen these connections. It's harder for us to kind of piece, piece it together, but um, the, Matthew's writing, um, it's clear that in Matthew's writing, he saw Jesus as a sort of anti-Caesar. Um, he is the perfect opposite of Caesar. He is the king of a kingdom that has no borders, a kingdom that lives in its people rather than its people in the kingdom. Jesus offers a radical alternative to empire. The promise of Caesar is oppression for the marginalized. It promises destruction for its enemies. It offers the type of economics that exploits poor workers in foreign lands as long as it means profit for our people. The promise of Jesus is peace and justice. It is not the way of the Republicans or the Democrats. It is the way of the cross, not of the gun. Some have called this way of Jesus the third way. Uh, it's not passive acceptance and it's not violence. It's something else. It's something, uh, it's a third way. I think the best way to illustrate this is um, with the passage when Jesus says, um, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Um, I mentioned Shane Claiborne earlier. Um, he's someone who's had a profound impact on me. He has an interesting take on this passage. Um, he argues that so he says, in that day and age, there was cultural taboos around using your left hand. Um, at that time, people only would have struck someone with the right hand. Um, and so he argues that this, is, uh, this slap that's being described with the right hand could only be like a backhanded slap. Um, it's, 
the type of slap that's meant to degrade and humiliate. Um, it's evocative of, of the slap of like a master to a slave or an abusive husband to his wife. Um, so when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, it's a call to force the attacker to look you in the eye and see your humanity. Um, after the backslap meant to lower you, turning the other cheek means the attacker could only then strike with a fist as an equal. Um, turning the other cheek is meant to reveal the violence of the attacker for what it is and humiliate them. It is not an act of fighting back or running in fear, but an affirmation of the victim's humanity. And I think this is the only response to violence that leads to the type of peace and reconciliation that Isaiah talks about in chapter 11, where the wolf flies down to the lamb. Fighting back won't do it. That only perpetuates the cycle of violence. Running away won't do it. That just allows the oppression to continue. For Isaiah and for Jesus, it starts here with an insistence that the image of God is in the oppressor and the oppressed. So I feel like I've just scratched the surface, but we've, I've tried to establish a kind of a rough idea of the politics of Isaiah and Jesus. So now I want to talk about how do we bring that to bear on our politics today? If Isaiah were here now, what would he have to say to America? What, would, what could this third way look like, uh, look like for us as a nation? And I want to kind of back up from these questions and kind of get a running start at it. Um, let's start with asking, where are we now relative to this kingdom of peace that uh, Isaiah describes? What's our current condition? As the United States, are we like Judah, the remnant of God's people awaiting deliverance? Or are we like Assyria or Babylon, the violent oppressor? Uh, so let's look at a few things. Um, the U.S. spends more on our military than the next highest spending countries combined, the next nine highest spending countries combined. We spend about as much on just nuclear weapons alone as we do on K-12 education. Um, I can't give a full account of our military's role in the world, but I want to give at least a couple of recent examples. In 1991, um, 10 years before 9-11, uh, um, during the Gulf War, the U.S. Air Force bombed the uh, Amiria shelter. This was clearly marked as a civilian shelter, and um, the bombing killed 408 civilians, um, mostly women and children. The U.S. has never apologized for this massacre or compensated the families of the victims. As we know, 10 years later, the Twin Towers were destroyed by members of Al-Qaeda, killing almost 3,000 civilians. This event was then used as a pretext to invade Iraq and later Afghanistan. This war on terror killed at least 387,000 civilians, at least 100 times the number of civilians killed on 9-11. The true number is unknown. Our use of drone strikes is littered with the careless destruction of farmers, families, um, wedding parties, and even a hospital. Today, the U.S. military provides air support for the um, Saudi Arabian war against the country of Yemen. Yemen, for a long time, has been the poorest country in the Middle East. Um, even before the, there was a Yemeni civil war in 2014, even before that, um, many Yemeni people had um, lacked access to basic clean water um, and basic needs. And um, Saudi Arabia's onslaught has been known to use tactics like destroying infrastructure and creating a blockade to prevent humanitarian aid coming in, which has exacerbated a, a six-year now cholera outbreak um, that's been devastating for the country. Um, and groups like um, the Red Cross can't even get into the country um, because of Saudi Arabia's actions. Um, and before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, the United Nations called the situation in Yemen and might still call this, I'm not sure, the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Um, 
Since 2015, across the past three administrations, the U.S. has been supplying arms, planes, and pilots to the Saudis to wage their war on Yemen. We have been su supporting the Saudi side. Um, and this is just scratching the surface. To get a sense of the scope of the problem, um, I, I want to mention a quote from Noam Chomsky. Um, so just for context, our understanding of what a war crime is was established at the end of World War II during the, what's called the Nuremberg Trials, um, when the Allies put on trial all the Nazi leaders, and they kind of defined at that time, okay, what is a war crime, and what are we going to try people on? Um, foreign policy expert Noam Chomsky would argue that um, if the Nuremberg principles were applied to U.S. presidents, every single president since World War II could be indicted uh, under the Nuremberg principles um, for war crimes. Um, our culture is so steeped in violence that our first response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine was to send $38 billion worth of weapons to fuel the conflict, an amount that dwarfs the amount of spent on humanitarian aid for Ukraine. I would be remiss if I did not remind us at this point, again, that violence is destructive, is destructive for the perpetrator and the victim. A recent study um, shows that 44 U.S. veterans die per day by suicide or other self-harm behaviors. As Claiborne says, imperial power is bad for your health. The hope of peace that Jesus offers is a hope for those on both ends of the gun barrel. So we return to this idea of, of Bishop Tutu. True revolution is when the oppressed are freed from being oppressed and the oppressors are freed from being oppressors. So all this to say, I would argue that our nation is more like a modern-day Assyria than a modern-day Judah. To the extent that we as Christians reject the empire of the United States, we are exiles in a foreign land. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, living in a violent nation that is not our true home. But this is the promise of Isaiah 11, that out of the ruin and wreckage of war, mass incarceration, corporate exploitation, and a thousand other injustices, out of that stump, a new shoot grows, a new life of peace and justice that we are invited into. So what does it look like to live in a kingdom not of the earth? How do we live as citizens of the kingdom of God in a wicked nation? Um, a small local example uh, that I want to mention, in, in 2013, the, the Salvation Army food truck that um, operates in Uptown was ordered by aldermen to stop serving food to the homeless. Um, and they could have just moved to another ward and kept doing what they were doing, but they refused. They kept um, serving meals in the same spot here in Uptown. Um, they recognized that the alderman was not their ultimate authority. Um, over the years, the city of Chicago has made numerous efforts to drive out those living in tents around the viaducts. Um, and there have been a variety of protests that insisted that no matter how poor or vulnerable our neighbors um, may be, they bear the image of Christ. Those protests have been a reminder that there are holy laws more important than city ordinances about blocking a public way. The way of Christ is unavoidably political. But these are examples at a local level. What can we as just little individuals do in the face of vast injustices of our military? What can we do about something like the war in Yemen? The psalmist wrote while in exile during the Babylonian captivity, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And I think this is a question for us. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Um, I have three answers to this question that I'll kind of close with. One is, uh, one is an easy answer, one is hard, and one is a mystery. The easy one first. Um, stop the war in Yemen. <laughs> That's the easy one. Um, 
there's a key difference between our situation and the situation of the ancient Assyrian, which is that we live in a democracy. Um, I encourage everyone to write to your, contact your senators and your congressperson to urge them to support uh, what's called the Yemen War Powers Resolution. Um, it's, there's currently versions of the same bill sitting in languishing in committee in both the House and the Senate. Um, and this would essentially end our involvement in Yemen. Um, a similar bill passed the House and the Senate back in 2019 and then was vetoed by the president. So it's definitely within reach to get it through. Um, if you don't know who your representatives are, you can go to commoncause.org, punch in your address, it'll tell you. Um, another local one, um, my friend Dan and I started a nonprofit that offers um, transitional housing to uh, young men experiencing homelessness. We have a coming event on Saturday at 3 p.m. Um, we have our annual event. I encourage, if you're, if you're free, come on out, um, have, some, have a good time, support the cause. Um, you can find details on our website, collectivechicago.org, or come catch me after the service. Um, also, it happens to be International Human Rights Day. And Ron's birthday, where's Ron? He's turned 71, yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, raise came there. I like that. Um, so that's the, those are a couple of easy answers. Now for the harder answer. How do we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? We start with peace and justice within arm's reach. Live at peace with your friends, family, and neighbors. Is there someone in your life who's wronged you? Someone you are at odds with? Ask God to show you the wounded person in that person. Ask yourself, is there a step towards peace that I can take with this person? How do we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? We live out the exhortations of the prophets within our immediate circle. To the extent that you're able, invite the homeless into your home, feed the hungry, visit the incarcerated, shop responsibly for products that don't exploit workers, live justly. Um, my favorite passage in all of scripture is just a little further on in Isaiah, Isaiah 58. Um, he says, what good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Okay, uh, answer number three, the mystery. And I, I, even if I had more time, I don't think I could explain this or back it up or justify it. So I'm just gonna say it. Uh, and I just, know, I just know it's true. I don't know if I can back it up, but. Um, how do we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? By taking the slow way, the long way around. Do things that don't compute in the marketplace of time and money. Sew yourself a pair of pants, plant vegetables, well, uh, it's winter, so I get plant, plant some herbs in your kitchen or something. Um, write poetry, play music, walk to work. Uh, Wendell Berry writes, Ans ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. <laughs>